page 65. By the end of the first century, which was also the end of the era of the apostles, the young Christian church had developed its own community way of life and worship. Its own scriptures were evolving into the form we know as the Christian Testament. And the church opening itself more and more to the Gentile world was finally separated from active participation in the Jewish community, though not from its Jewish roots and scriptures. To the first century Christians, hostility and persecution from outside the community, as well as conflict over ideas and directions within the community, were no strangers. Such difficulties foreshadowed what was to come in the next two centuries, a period of greater suffering, as Christian martyrs would die for their faith in an empire that was hostile to them. In those centuries, even ordinary Christians would wrestle with questions of who Jesus was, their different beliefs creating divisions among Christians. But from the intense heat of Roman persecution and internal conflict over doctrine would emerge the gold tested in fire, the courageous faith of the early Christian church, and a clarity of understanding about who this Jesus was the Christians were dying for. The story of Blandina, a slave, and other martyrs of Lyon in the part of the Roman Empire known as Gaul, now France, dramatizes the horrors of persecution, but also the impressive strength of belief those early Christians held. This account of Blandina's martyrdom in the year 177 is excerpted from a long letter written at the time by one who survived a terrible persecution. There can be no adequate description, either in word or writing, of the magnitude of the suffering here, of the animosity of the pagans toward the saints, or of the steadfastness of the blessed martyrs. Page 66. Forty-eight Christians were dragged before the Roman governor. Every one of them confessed faith in Christ, knowing that they would thus be condemned to torture and public execution. The Christians were tortured in hopes that it would force them to reject Christianity. We were all in a state of terror, lest Blandina, by reason of her physical frailty, would not be able to make a bold confession of faith. But she was filled with such power that even those taking turns to torture her in every possible way from morning till night had to admit defeat. Her whole body was a mass of open wounds, yet this blessed woman was renewed in her vigor through her confession of faith. Indeed, the very saying of the words, I am a Christian, we have done nothing to be ashamed of, was itself a restoration. After being tortured, the Christians were tied up in the arena to be devoured by wild beasts. Blandina, hanging from a stake, was exposed as bait for the wild beasts which had been loosed for the attack. She seemed to hang there in the form of a cross and continued to inspire those still struggling. But since none of the beasts had touched her, Blandina was taken down from the stake and led back to prison. This woman, little, weak, easily despised, had put on the mighty and invincible warrior Christ. Blandina was brought back again together with Ponticus, a boy of 15. Every day they had been brought in to watch the rest being tortured, and those had been attempts to force them to take the oath by the pagan idols. After the scourging, after the wild animals, after the red-hot grid, finally Blandina was cast into a net and exposed to a bull. She was severely tossed by the animal, yet was hardly aware of what was happening because of her hope and her grasp that all she believed in and her communion with Christ. At last, she was sacrificed, but the pagans themselves confessed that never had any woman suffered so much and so intensely. After the bodies of the martyrs had been subjected to every possible insult and lain exposed to the elements for six days, these wicked people burned the remains and swept the ashes into the Rhone River, which flows close by. They were determined that not a trace be left on the face of the earth. Blandina died in Lyon, but Christianity could not be put to death. 
the blood of the martyrs became the seed of Christianity. Page 67. Why were the Christians such a threat to the Roman Empire that the Romans felt it necessary to torture and execute them? The empire at that time, though seemingly all-powerful, was in fact coming apart at the seams, strained by its own corrupt emperors and by barbarian attacks from the north. The Roman demand for conformity. The thinking of the Roman authorities proceeded like this. Common religious observance fostered unity in the empire. Refusing to observe the Roman religious sacrifices and pay homage to the divine emperors was thus unpatriotic, even treasonous. Unpatriotic people caused disunity in the empire. In addition, the Roman citizens believed that the gods sent blessings on them only if they offered sacrifices. They feared that the gods would curse them for tolerating the Christians' refusal to offer sacrifices. As a result of the Romans' thinking, the faith of Christians was regularly tested in the fires of torture, persecution, periodic persecutions. A law against being Christian was in effect for two centuries, although it was enforced only periodically. The outright persecution of Christians was limited to those periods, but throughout the two centuries, much of the Roman world looked upon the Christians with deep suspicion. Christians never knew when someone might turn them in for being Christian or when the next persecution would come. Despite the constant possibility of harassment, suffering, torture, and even death, Christian communities took root in Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, Gaul, and Spain, and on the coast of Africa. Well-known early martyrs. Among the early martyrs were many bishops, including Ignatius of Antioch, who was taken to Rome to be eaten by lions in the amphitheater for the amusement of the crowds at the circus. Not concerned about himself on the way to Rome, Ignatius wrote letters to the Christians of each of the seven towns at which he and his captors stopped. He encouraged those groups of Christians to be united with their own bishop. At one point on his journey, Ignatius summed up the type of belief that sustained not only him, but many of the early martyrs. Now I begin to be a disciple. Come fire and cross, gashes and rendings, tearing of the flesh, breaking of bones and mangling of limbs, the shattering in pieces of my whole body. Come the wicked torments of the devil upon me, if I may but attain unto Jesus Christ. Another renowned martyr of the period was Justin. Born of non-Christian parents, he studied all kinds of philosophies in his search for the meaning of life. He found his answers in Christianity. In Rome, he started a school of philosophy that would be a bridge between Christianity and pagan philosophy. Arrested for being Christian, Justin and six of his students refused to sacrifice to an idol, and all of them were executed. Justin was one of the earliest, most important apologists or defenders of the faith, well-educated people who knew Greek philosophy and could debate with non-Christians on an equal basis. Page 68. Barbarians threatened the empire's order. For most citizens besides the Christians, life in the Roman world from approximately 100 to 200 CE was peaceful enough. Prosperous cities ringed the Mediterranean. The various ethnic groups were held together by Roman law. A single currency was used in the empire and roads led everywhere. Commerce flowed throughout the empire. The peace of Rome did not bring justice and peace to Roman subjects in any deep sense. After all, they were living under the boot of a powerful dictatorship that could execute people at will for dissenting. But there was peace in the sense of relative order. Uh, just a side note, if you remember from Miss Curry, the concept of Pax Romana, that's kind of what we're talking about here. Nevertheless, nomadic tribes from the north posed a constant threat as they gathered strength to attack Roman territory. They were known as barbarians, from the Greek word meaning hairy ones. 
The term referred to any non-Roman who spoke an unfamiliar language and who was unshaven. Now it is synonymous with brute or savage, an association that is probably unfair to the tribes. The barbarians lived on the northern frontier formed by the Rhine and Danube rivers. The Romans built forts and walled cities to protect the empire's northern border. Sometimes the Romans even hired barbarian tribes to help guard the frontier border. Later on, barbarians were recruited for, page 69, the imperial army. However, most barbarians lived free of control and liked to make quick raids across the borders into Roman lands. The Romans' fear of the barbarians and of any dissent fueled the suppression of minority groups like the Christians. Declined into chaos. The years from 100 to 200 had seen persecutions of Christians. The next 100 years brought the emergence of worse emperors and crueler persecutions, but a sharp decline in the real influence of the Roman Empire. A tyrannical empire was assassinated, then one inept emperor followed another. The empire was rotting from the inside, and on the outside, the nomadic tribes were sharpening their swords. No tolerance for nonconformity. Corrupt as the Roman empires were, each of them demanded complete loyalty from all citizens. In 250 CE, the emperor required each citizen to carry a certificate showing that he or she had sacrificed to the gods. Faithful Christians, of course, refused to take part in the pagan rites. Another strike against the Christians was their resistance to joining the army, or if they did join, their participating only in a non-combat capacity. Pacifism, the belief that it is wrong to kill another human being in war or for any other purpose, was, for the most part, the tradition of the early church. This commitment won the Christians the contempt of society because helping to fight the barbarians was deemed a patriotic duty. A general persecution of Christians was ordered, in which the bishops of Rome, Antioch, and Jerusalem were martyred. Other periods of persecution followed. Diocletian's Persecutions As the 300s came to an end, the Roman Empire finally had a competent ruler, Diocletian, who was competent in the sense of being able to get things done. He managed to hold off the barbarians' invasions, which was something his immediate predecessors had failed to do. He reorganized the government, moving from military to civil I'm sorry, to civilian administration. But Diocletian demanded complete conformity to his will, which he thought, mistakenly, would bring unity to the empire. Naturally, Diocletian turned his attention to the dissenting Christians. In his last two years of rule, he ordered churches destroyed, sacred books burned, and leaders executed. The persecutions were especially horrible in North Africa and in the East. Ironically, some of Diocletian's own relatives were Christians. Page 72. Christians who sacrificed to idols, what to do? Um, let's... Hang on. Let's move page 72 to after... No, we can keep it here. Let's keep page 72 here. My apologies. I was right the first time. Christians who sacrificed to idols, what to do? Besides mourning for martyred or enslaved family and friends, Christians had to face a new problem resulting from the persecutions. What should they do with Christians who had sacrificed to the idols to save their lives? Should those people be allowed to reenter the Christian communities? Most of these apostates, or people who had renounced their faith, wanted to repent and return to the church. 
Some bishops said that their sin of denial could never be forgiven. Other bishops disagreed. Sharp debate about this issue ensued for many years, but the decision of the Bishop of Rome became generally accepted. Apostates could be reunited with the Christian communities after repentance. The public penance and ritual of reentry were the first forms of what we know as the sacrament of reconciliation. Christians on the brink of a revolution. By now, the church had endured, even thrived during three centuries of persecution. The suffering had tested the convictions of anyone who wanted to be a Christian. Little did the Christians of the early 300s realize that a revolution in their identity and power was about to begin. They would soon change from a church of nonviolent martyrs with no political power into a church entwined with the culture, politics, and wars of Europe for many centuries. What follows next is a map of the Roman Empire and the Tetrarchy, the uh, Roman Empire divided by dioceses, and then we go to page 73. Constantine's conversion, a new era for the church. One man can be singled out as initiating a whole new era for the church. Though not a Christian himself at the time, Constantine's actions would alter the church's power and status dramatically. How did this radical reversal of fortune for the church come about? A claim of victory through the Son of God. After Diocletian's rule, several contenders grasped for the imperial throne. Constantine was chosen to be emperor by the Roman troops in Britain, but he faced the superior forces of a rival emperor when he reached Rome in 312 CE to make his claim to the throne. The story is told that before the decisive battle, Constantine had a vision promising him that he would conquer through a special sign, the sign of Christ. Constantine's mother, Helena, was a Christian, but Constantine, himself a pagan, worshipped the sun god. Trusting the vision, Constantine instructed his soldiers to put the first two Greek letters of Christ's name, Chi-Ro, on their banners and shields. Out of the battle, Constantine's smaller army emerged victorious. That battle is known as the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, and it occurred on October 28, 312, by the way. The Roman Senate erected a triumphal arch to Constantine, which attributed the victory to the sun god. Page 74. Constantine shocked them by honoring the Son of God instead. Although he then supported Christianity, Constantine would not be officially baptized until shortly before his death in 337. Christianity becomes legal. Constantine at first agreed to share power with a general who would be emperor of the eastern part of the empire, while Constantine would be emperor of the western part. Edict of Milan Shortly after assuming power in 313, Constantine and the Eastern Emperor issued the Edict of Milan, granting freedom of worship to the Christians in the Roman Empire. Christians could no longer be punished by law for practicing or preaching their religion. They had moved from an underground or secret status to an aboveground or open and legitimate status. Further privileges followed, with Christian clergy being exempted from paying taxes and many churches being built by Constantine, especially in Rome and Palestine. A new capital for a fresh start. In 324, Constantine defeated the Eastern Emperor, united the empire, and became the sole ruler. Rome itself was run down. Many people lived in crumbling slums. Feeling that a fresh start was needed, Constantine decided to move to a new capital in the eastern part of the empire, closer to the centers of population. For the site, he chose a little town called Byzantium. He named his city New Rome, even modeling the public buildings after Roman structures. 
Constantinople, as it became, as it came to be called, became the new center of the empire. Church and state entwined. Like emperors before him, Constantine saw religion as a way of unifying the people from various cultures who were under his domination. Thus, Constantine began to interfere in church matters. Previous empires, emperors, had dominated the Roman pagan religions, so Constantine was following suit by trying to run the church. The Christians, finally legitimate and enjoying Constantine's good favor, were of course grateful to him and therefore not inclined to resist his influence. This development, though, was an enormous one. Christianity, which had been powerless, poor, and nonviolent for three centuries, became allied with the Rome Empire. The tension between being true to the faith versus being loyal and subservient to the government was to saturate church history for centuries. The official religion of the empire. By the end of the fourth century, the reversal of fortune for the church was complete. The emperor Theodosius declared paganism illegal and made Christianity the official religion of the empire in 380. Christianity was not only tolerated, but was enforced. By the year 500, in another ironic twist for the once generally pacifist church, only Christians were allowed to serve in the army. Thus, while Constantine's conversion saved the church from the horrors of persecution, a new era began when the church became intimately connected with worldly power and, too often, with the corruption of power. By the mid-300s, Christian bishops ranked high in public life, some of them holding civil positions as judges. Staying free from political pressures and influences proved difficult. The church was also given lands, and the revenue from these properties were to be used for the upkeep of the church. However, the accumulation of property sometimes led to greed. The church in 350 was a far cry from the band of apostles who had wandered with Jesus, having no place to lay their